Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by special returning guest, Jason Crawford. Jason is the co-founder of Roots of Progress. Jason, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, Jason, for people who haven't listened to our historical episodes, you know, Patrick Carlson and, and Tyler Cowen, maybe a year ago, wrote this uh, uh, great, great article about uh, introducing progress studies. You got really excited about it. You became a full-time researcher, writer. You have this course, which I'll let you talk about. Why don't you talk about for for people who are new to this? What is progress studies? Why is it so and why is it so exciting to you? And let, let's get into your work, and then and we'll go deeper on some of the ideas. Yeah, sure. So let me yeah let me first talk about sort of my project, which actually goes back about three three and a half years now um, was when I got started, and then uh, and then I can briefly mention the um, sort of progress studies or progress community that has arisen in the last year or so. Um, thanks especially to Tyler and Patrick. Um, so I got interested in progress as kind of a personal project um, in like early 2017. Um, I created this, uh, this uh, website, The Roots of Progress, where I write about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. Um, it started out for me as just kind of a personal reading project and some notes on interesting books that I was reading, both in the history of technology and the Industrial Revolution, and kind of more broadly in the ideas behind um, you know, human progress and what led to progress in science and technology um, that, that ultimately gave us sort of modern industrial civilization and the standard of living that we all enjoy, which is you know, unprecedented in history, um, this level of, of wealth and comfort and safety. And then, so I was just doing that as kind of a personal project for a couple of years. Um, The blog had started to get a little bit uh, popular. And then about a year ago, Tyler Cowen, the economist at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and Patrick Collison, the co-founder of Stripe, uh, co-authored this article in The Atlantic uh, calling for a new discipline of progress studies. And that article sort of galvanized this, uh, this small community of people who are interested in the concept of progress and its relevance to today. And I was naturally just sort of like thrust into the center uh, of that because I'd been already been writing about progress for a couple of years on, on my site. Uh, it was not long after that that um, I decided to uh, move on from the job I was at and, uh, and needed to find something new to do. And so it was a very natural time for me to take this um, you know, e- even though my previous career for almost two decades had been in the tech industry as a software engineering manager and tech startup founder, um, it, it was actually uh, quite natural, if if somewhat unconventional, for me to uh, follow this thing that I this this thing that I'd gotten you know quite obsessed with as an intellectual pursuit, and also this thing where there was a burgeoning community, you know, just kind of uh, being created around it. And so last fall, I went full-time and have now been, uh, you know, doing this uh, re- researching and writing about uh, progress full-time. And these are two related, separate, but, uh, related and separate questions, which is, one is, you know, just understanding progress as a, as a field itself. And, and you're doing a lot of work into this. You're doing a lot of research, writing, and really leading there. But then there's also this question of, okay, now where does that fit in within our university system or within our common sense? How to popularize it, basically. What, defining the field and then defining how to make the field broadly accessible. It's been some time. Where are we right now in, in, in both of those sort of endeavors? 
Yeah, I think there's a few different aspects to this. You could break it down. So one would be um, progress studies within academia, perhaps even getting defined as a field or a discipline within academia. Another uh, would be maybe the focus on progress uh, in a more an intellectual focus on bro- progress, but in a broader uh, sense. So outside academia, among kind of generally intellectually curious people, or people in um, journalism, or in uh, in the media, in uh, in government, you know, sort of thinking about this as a topic, um, and it being kind of an intellectual community, and then. Uh, you know, maybe you could also think of it in terms of uh, people wanting to actually kind of organize and take action that that might be implied by some of these ideas. I think what we've got the most of so far is the second one of those, which is kind of intellectual interest outside of academia. Progress studies, as it was proposed in Tyler and Patrick's article, was um, it was proposed as, I would say, kind of an interdisciplinary area. It wasn't meant to replace or supplant existing disciplines like history or economics or economic history or history and philosophy of science or sociology or um, industrial organization, et cetera, management science. But rather, it was meant to be something you know interdisciplinary, cutting across all of those uh, pulling in insights, uh, methods, and techniques from any or all of those as appropriate to focus on this kind of central but broad concept of progress. And then also they were calling for something that's a little more prescriptive. Um, so not just something that, that studies uh, the nature and causes, but something of progress, but something really with an eye to, okay, but now what do we do? So, you know, something that would be uh, as medicine is to biology or as engineering is to physics, great, maybe we understand progress, but now how do we make more of it? Because that's really ultimately the goal. Uh, there has certainly been, you know, some response, I would say, from uh, economists and economic historians. Uh, there, there are some folks in academia who consider themselves maybe to be a part of this community. There are some people who are who are doing very good work in this area, whether or not they have any strong ties to kind of this this community. So it's a, you know, it's a thing that already, um, it, it wasn't completely non-existent at the time of this article. I think Tyler and Patrick were just calling for more of it to be done and for more attention to be paid to what is already being done. Yeah, so uh, we haven't yet seen, uh, you know, a progress studies department or fellowship or chair or or other sort of program. Uh, and I, I, I don't know sort of if or when we will see that kind of thing. But uh, but I think we are seeing more of it in among um, more independent intellectuals, you know, bloggers for back, lack of a better term, uh, and people like me who are just sort yeah. of, you know, getting out there and and um, and, and look, the, the fact is, I think there's actually a tremendous amount of relevant work that's already been done in academia. And maybe I just say this because I myself am not an academic, but it seems to me that there's an enormous amount of great work that's been done within academia. And what's needed is, is sort of for someone to tie it together, to summarize it, synthesize it, popularize it, make people more aware of it uh, and, and of the of the kind of the meaning of the sum total of it and the implications that at least is what I'm trying to do with my work. Yeah. Let's go in, into your work a bit and then let's talk about how to popularize it. You have some recent ideas on the factors that influence progress. And I think you've organized it into a, a few layers. Why don't you unpack that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I don't yet have a grand unified theory of human progress, but I have obviously been thinking a lot about what are the causes and kind of observing. And uh, these days I am thinking of it, um, uh, you know, as you indicated in sort of three layers. So I'll, I'll kind of go through them from maybe from, you know, in digging down, uh, you know, deeper and deeper into, into kind of fundamentality. So the first layer that I'm thinking a lot about is 
funding models, models of uh, funding, organization, and management of, uh, especially of research. How does research get funded? Where does the money come from? How, how are resources allocated? There's been some interesting changes in this over the decades and the centuries. A lot of research is done in universities today. This, it's all, universities are almost synonymous with scientific research. And yet, you know, that's a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, the beginning of the scientific era, the scientific revolution, uh, it was, it was, universities were not necessarily the place where this stuff was all done. The, the research university as a concept was sort of invented in 19th century Germany and then exported to America and, and other places. And it wasn't until the very late 1800s and, and you know, early 1900s that, um, that America started to get really strong research universities. And, you know, I guess you know, maybe, maybe by, by the early 1900s, re, you know, university was kind of the place where research was done. But it's just an interesting reminder that it wasn't always that way. You know, government, too, has changed its role, especially um, in America. Uh, the government became a much greater funder of research uh, during and then after World War II. And so, you know, things were, things were sort of different um, before that. Corporate research also has changed. We had kind of a golden era, it seems, of the great corporate research labs, um, especially in the pre-World War II era, and then maybe in, in, you know, some great ones in the decades just after it, if you think of like um, what Bell Labs and, and Xerox Park did. But there seems to have been a decline of corporate research in recent years. And there was a really interesting paper that came out from um, Ashish Aurora et al., um, and you can find some some good notes on that, especially on uh, Benjamin Reinhardt's uh, website. And so, uh, you know, just thinking about like how do we how do we fund things? Um, even if you look within purely within government research, like uh, or government funding of research, there are very different models. If you compare, for instance, like the NIH and their R01 grant to like DARPA and their program manager based model, extremely different models of kind of how we conceive of doing research, where ideas come from, how funding allocation decisions are made. And I just I just think these things have got to lead to different types of outcomes. And this feels understudied to me. Um, okay, so all of that is um, all of that is like the first layer. Digging down a lever, level um, deeper is sort of what are the um, institutional structures and especially the legal um, structures uh, and regulatory structures that um, govern what kinds of innovation can happen um, and, and what kinds of progress can be made. And here in particular, I am worried about, uh, you know, whether we have over the decades slowly accumulated a kind of creeping bureaucratic regulatory state I think there has sort of been a pattern of, at least anecdotally, I see a bit of a pattern of any time that there's a disaster or even a kind of a worry, risk or fear that we start adding rules, you know, uh, which, you know, from a certain sense is kind of intelligent and admirable. Yeah. When something goes wrong, you want to do a root cause analysis. You want to try to figure out how do we prevent this from happening again? Um, You know, in the early part of the century when we had uh, you know, when, when there were very poor um, health and safety practices at both, uh, uh, you know, food uh, production and distribution, like meat packing plants or the way that milk was packaged and sold uh, and travel, transported on railways and so forth, or um, very poor practices uh, where at pharmaceutical companies, you know, they used to, they used to produce uh, diphtheria antitoxin by, uh, through horses. 
Um, so they would have, they would inf- infect horses with diphtheria and then collect their blood serum and their blood serum would contain the antitoxin that could be used to treat diphtheria cases. And, you know, this is all well and good until the horse gets like a, ba- a, a di- you know, a different like um, bacterial infection or something or viral infection that then gets into the serum. And now you're giving people like a different disease um, right out of the, the horse's blood serum. And so like disasters like this happen. And then what do we get? Well, we get the FDA. Um, for instance, we get the Pure Food and Drug Act. Um, I believe 1906, the FDA was created, um, you know, because of because of problems like this. And okay, but then fast forward 100 years, and now it costs well over a billion dollars, you know, to on average to develop a successful new drug. And we have like this, um, we have the opposite of Moore's law in uh, the drug development pipeline. It's literally been termed E-Room's law, E-Room being more spelled backwards, um, where the amount of money it takes to develop a new drug like doubles every nine years, right? Whereas in, in, in transistors and, and integrated circuits, the costs are getting, the costs are getting cut in half, uh, you know, every, every time period. Incidentally, I saw something recently that said that E-Room's law may have flattened out, which would be a good thing if so, uh, in the last decade or so, but it's unclear whether that will hold. And for a long time, it was a trend that, you know, drug development was just getting more and more expensive. So I wonder whether we have sort of unwittingly traded safety for progress, you know, making a kind of slow, gradual, accumulated trade-off that nobody... um, you know, every time you can have sort of evaluate the safety that a new rule will, will add, but it's hard to it's it's harder to see and measure um, the cost and the overhead and the slowdown of these new rules. Um, I have to wonder whether a similar thing is going on, for instance, in construction. Construction in America, not worldwide, but in America and some other countries, is just dramatically slower and more expensive than it used to be, and it's dramatically slower and more expensive in America than it is in some other countries like Italy or Korea. And so I think we just really need to look into like, how has this um, happened? And is it, has it happened through kind of the slow accumulation of bureaucratic rules, which is my guess hypothesis. I can't, um, I don't, I don't have strong data behind that yet. Okay. All of that is layer two digging down to what I think is the deepest layer are kind of our most fundamental cultural, moral, philosophical ideas around uh, science, technology, and progress. Joel Mokir points out that the very idea of progress, the idea that progress is uh, possible and desirable, is a relatively new one in history, and really something that kind of arose in uh, in the West uh, in the 15 and 1600s. Uh, and before then, you know, people sort of had mo- through most cultures in most uh, places and times had the opposite idea. They had uh, essentially an idea of what Mokir calls ancestor worship. The idea that um, our ancient ancestors were the greatest people who ever lived, that all knowledge that matters was revealed to them uh, long ago, and that really all we can do is sort of study the ancient texts and kind of, you know, learn what we can from them. This was what gave rise to the sort of the scholastic um, school of the uh, kind of the medieval universities where all you're doing is studying and restudying these same ancient texts. You know, Aristotle is like all you have of physics and you're not going out and doing physics experiments. You're just reading Aristotle. And um, hey, Aristotle was a great writer, but in terms of how to learn the best about physics, maybe rereading 2,000-year-old texts was not like the best way to do it, it turns out. So, uh, you know, it was kind of understandable back in the Middle Ages that uh, people would look around, especially in Europe, um, that people would look around at the ruins left from, you know, the ancient Romans, and they would see the Colosseum or the aqueducts, or even the, the ancient Egyptians, and they would go look out at the pyramids in the desert, and they would think to themselves, wow, 
these people who lived thousands of years ago were a race of giants. They knew how to do stuff that we, you know, can't even approach today. And then we would find their texts, like we'd find Vitruvius um, and his, uh, his writings on, uh, on architecture and building and discover that the Romans knew how to make cement, you know, that set underwater, uh, you know, by mixing in volcanic ash and, you know, just sort of like rediscovering these ancient lost secrets. It's kind of understandable that people would think like, this is the way to do it, you know, just pick up the ancient knowledge. Uh, but that idea had to get explicitly challenged and overturned before we could make, um, you know, really make significant progress and have a scientific revolution and then eventually have an industrial revolution. And so, you know, today, obviously, um, we, like we know that uh, there's there's more progress to be made. Um, but I think people's attitudes towards progress, um, their expectations for the future, do they have a fundamentally optimistic outlook? Um, on the future? Does our science fiction show us utopias or dystopias, you know, or something in between? And, you know, does our science fiction even show us like big engineering projects? Uh, Mark Lutter, who runs the Charter Cities Institute, likes to uh, talk about this um, Chinese sci-fi and, uh, and sort of maybe like, distinct, you know, look at Chinese versus American sci-fi these days. And uh, he's talking in particular about this Oh, the sci-fi show, or, or um, can't remember the exact title, but it's something like Spaceship Earth, and it's literally about a future in which I, I know, something's happening to the sun, and basically we got to get we got to get out of the solar system, and so they just do this enormous like geoengineering project, and they turn the Earth itself into a giant spaceship, like they put a, an engine on it. Um, and they give it a steering and control system and they can, you know, and they can now pilot the entire earth like out of the solar system and go looking for a new, you know, sun to orbit. And he just points to this as, as a, as an indication of kind of like, there's some kind of, you know, big, uh, Peter Thiel would call it definite optimism around this, right? There's some kind of a big, yeah, we can do enormous earth-sized, solar system-sized engineering projects. We can just decide to do this thing and, and we can uh, all organize and, you know, collaborate together and do this huge thing and it's going to work. That's how awesome science and technology is. And so there's these different kind of, you know, views and visions of what is science and technology? Um, what can it do for us? Uh, can it do good things? Can we control it even, or will it run out of control? And I think fundamentally those attitudes affect where do young people want to go into, you know, what fields do they want to go into? What do they want to study in school? What careers do they want to pursue? If people have money, what do they want to fund, right? What do the wealthiest people in the world want to fund? What do governments want to fund? What, pro what kinds of projects are popular, right? Do governments want to fund science? Will the people support that? And so I think these fundamental ideas and attitudes towards technology and progress um, ultimately uh, have a huge effect on uh, what kind of progress gets made long-term. And if you want to look at very long-term, you know, decades or even centuries-long trends, I think ideas and attitudes are uh, a really core place to look. So those are my, those are my three layers, just, just to recap, sort of like finance, funding an organization, layer two, you know, sort of regulation and, and law, and then, right, and then layer three, culture and philosophy. Let's start with the, the first layer. Uh, what do you think are some of, the, some of the solutions or even frameworks we should be thinking about for how to solve these problems? Or if you could wave a wand and change anything about how we, how we think about currently, what, what might you change? recommend? Yeah. Well, I mean, one hypothesis that I'd like to investigate is that we've gotten a little too uh, maybe centralized and monolithic in our funding and that that is, um, you know, something to, uh, to address. So, you know, the NIH today budget over $40 billion, the largest funder by far of life sciences in the world. 
And they fund, I think, more than half of their grants through this particular like R01 process. Regardless of what you think about that process, and there are some arguments that that process itself is, you know, kind of very short-term focused, uh, project-based, risk-averse, prone to uh, to groupthink. Even if you, and, and there's some good arguments to, you know, good reasons to be worried about those things. Even if you uh, set those aside, should so much of our funding be going through a singular mechanism like that, right? No matter how good that mechanism is, isn't it the case that that mechanism might be prone to blind spots? And so, you know, uh, uh, Patrick Collison had suggested, at least very briefly in a tweet or something somewhere, you know, that like, what if we just took the funding and just split it into 10 or 12 agencies and somehow incentivize them to deliberately pursue like heterog- heterogeneous approaches, like just very, just, just uh, like, it's almost like, I don't care what you do, just do something different. Just don't all do the same thing. You know, one of the advantages of the for-profit world, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to seek venture capital for a, uh, for a for-profit idea, is that there's no one VC that you have to get on board, right? There's, there's like a dozen or more really top, very prestigious VCs, and there's hundreds that you could go out to who can just write you a check or thousands maybe, right, uh, or more. And so there's like, there's like all these different ways of, uh, of funding a venture. And you only, at the end of the day, have to get one of them basically to say yes. Um, and so even now that, that doesn't mean that you have all the diversity in the world, right? There, there might be some cultural homogeneity among those um, different VCs and stuff. But they, they're kind of all incentivized um, to, to spread out somewhat in idea space. Um, and in and in the space of like basic premises, and even in the space of uh, models and mechanisms for like how do like sourcing models, right? Like how do they find their, you know, how how do they source their deals? What's their deal flow? Like in the for-profit world, investors are actively incentivized to be contrarian, right? Like by the nature of um, competition for ideas and, and competition for deals, they are actively incentivized to like be right in a space where everybody else is wrong. And so um, there's this kind of, uh, you know, if you think of just like a bunch of positively charged uh, particles sort of like spreading out in space and like not clumping together, there's this incentive for, uh, you know, for for for-profit investors to kind of do that. There's also um, an incentive in the for-profit world for investors to get in early. So this is a mechanism that we have in for-profit investing that we don't have in nonprofit funding, which is you get highly outsized returns, like orders of magnitude better returns for being right early. I don't think that anything comparable exists or has ever been devised in the nonprofit world. Um, So if you look at, for instance, the early trials of penicillin, uh, in, ni- in 1940 or so, uh, Howard Florey's lab at Oxford is developing what will become the first really blockbuster antibiotic, probably the greatest bre- medical breakthrough of the 20th century. And his lab was like ridiculously underfunded. He's scraping together, you know, donations that are like a couple hundred pounds, uh, you know, British pounds here and there. And it's like, okay, it's 1940, so maybe multiply that by 10. But okay, so he's getting maybe like thousands of euros or something donations in, in, in today's money. And it's like, here they are working. Like if you had a crystal ball at the time and you knew how important penicillin was going to be, you'd just be like flooding money into that thing. You'd just be like, no, get it done now, right? Like faster guys work, you know, like let's, let's do this thing. And so I just kind of wonder, like, those people who wrote Howard Florey, like, a 500-pound check in 1940, like, who are they? You know, from a certain perspective, I feel like history should know their names. 
you know, like they should be on like a hall of fame somewhere of like funders who were in early on these like world changing things. That's like how many lives have antibiotics saved, right? I mean, just penicillin alone, like let alone the entire kind of antibiotic revolution that that helped um, spark. And penicillin wasn't the first antibiotics, by the way, there was a whole class of antibiotics before them, but it was like a, it was a, 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 a big breakthrough that helped people see how important antibiotics could be. So like you can credit lots and lots of lives, you know, to that research, the, the lives saved per dollar of those early, you know, few hundred pound checks is just enormous. And I feel like somebody should get credit for that, but that credit doesn't generally work that way in the nonprofit world. And in particular, um, I, I'm, I worry that the incentives are set up exactly backwards. So like, if you think of like, what are, what's the overall social cost and payoff to investing in these kinds of things early, the cost is super small, right? It's just like the money. Basically you can, you can, the money can get wasted and that's a shame. And uh, maybe there's opportunity cost of like the money or the, or the researchers, but the direct costs are just like the money and some researchers time. Um, and then the potential payoff for the things that work out is these like orders of magnitude, right? Um, way out there. And so like the reward structure for people who give money for these things ought to mirror that. Now in for-profit investing, we've basically figured out how to make that work, right? So in the venture world, you're ca- the, the most you can lose on an investment is 1x, right? You can, the most you can lose is all your money. And there really isn't much of like a social cost to making a bad investment, right? If it's like super tremendously bad and high profile, maybe you'll get ridiculed a bit. But like, uh, you know, nobody really cares about your flops. They care about your hits, right? That's where you make your money and your, and, you know, and your reputation is on investing in these things early. And then if you do invest early, you can make that thousand X return. If you were the seed investor in, um, you know, in Airbnb or in Stripe or whatever, right? You're making that, you're making that thousand X return. So those incentives are kind of aligned properly with the, the sort of reality risk reward. I worry that in nonprofit uh, funding, um, whether it's government or private foundations, by the way, um, that it's sort of the opposite. If you um, if you if you do invest in something uh, that turns out to be world changing, you don't get like a much you know huger return. At least you don't get you certainly even if anybody knows who you were, um, you don't get a, a disproportionate return for uh, being in early. Right? It's like the difference in being a seed investor. And I think about. You know, in the last five, 10 years, as um, investors have been, you know, as, as we've had later, bigger and later stage private rounds, and then there's, you know, these investors who would invest in the Series E or whatever of like Groupon or Uber or whatever, and then they would put like the logo on their website, right? Um, and so maybe they got the like logo on the website credit, um, you know, for, for being a late stage investor, but they don't get the return, you know, they don't get the monetary return, which is ultimately um, what matters. But in the nonprofit world, you can put that logo on your website and say, oh, yeah, here's one of the projects that we backed. And like, if people aren't paying attention to, well, but were you in early before anybody saw that this was going to be a thing? Were you the angel who made this possible? Or did you just glom onto it later and sort of give the money when it was already prestigious, right? So we don't have that asymmetric upside from being in early. At the same time, I worry that there's like asymmetric downside to funding the the quote unquote wrong thing, right? If you are making funding decisions and you fund something that everybody thought was stupid and then it flops, like, is that a career ending move for you? Like, I don't know, but I can totally see that happening, right? And at least I can certainly see, you know, nonprofit funders worrying about kind of associating their names with, you know, these kind of, these kind of flop ideas. And so I just worry that we have the incentives, um, you know, set up backwards. At the same time, 
For-profit models can't fund everything, right? For-profit models generally have a limited time horizon and they need to be able to capture value. And that's sort of, it seems like it's really tough to make that a fit for some of the most valuable investing that we do, which is investing in long-term scientific research. That sort of stuff needs a very long-term and almost indefinite time horizon because you don't know when it's going to pay off. And we don't, it's unclear whether you can capture value uh, in those things and how much you can capture and sort of like what are the mechanisms for doing it. I would love to find either a way to make for-profit investing in long-term scientific research work or, uh, and or a way to realign incentives in nonprofit you know, research funding. I, I saw Luke Nosek, I think, is this is fund called Gigafund, which I think has a longer uh, time horizon. And maybe he just negotiated that with his LPs because he has that sort, sort of pull. But maybe, maybe that's one example in terms of what you're thinking about. Yeah, and I think the time horizon is doable. Certainly going beyond the 10-year, you know, the classic sort of 10 or 12-year like VC fund, I think is definitely doable from a couple of examples I've seen and and um, just from anecdotally from like talking to people who've raised money from LPs. My, my impression is that a 20-year fund at least would be doable, probably 25 or 30. Uh, you might not get away with charging management fees uh, for 20 years, but, you know, if you, you could figure out kind of the right structure, you know, it might work. Uh, it, it may be that the issue of capturing value is harder. Yeah. Um, I wonder, right. if, is there any, like, in, if music, right, we, we've figured out royalties such that if you ever use, you know, elements of that music, it, it ties back and they're using blockchain to sort of, you know, timestamp it in interesting ways. Uh, is there something with science, if you sort of use something that's pretty foundational, you could somehow tie it back to the creator and reward them, you know, like a some percentage of royalties, or, or, or is that just too complicated or unlikely to work? Huh. Well, I mean, the first thing you need is a foundation in the law, right? So, uh, you know, a blockchain may help you track these things, but it doesn't actually give you the legal right to charge royalties. And uh, I mean, scientific discoveries are not patentable. Uh, I mean, and properly in my view, like, you know, you discover a law of nature, like there's just, you know, you, you can't exclude people from kind of recognizing like a basic fact of reality, right? But maybe there's some other, you know, way to do it. Maybe there's some way to connect. And it doesn't have to be that you... Uh, okay, look, here's a couple of things. It doesn't have to be that you... First off, you don't have to capture all the value um, of, of research, right? If the research generates an enormous amount, like you only need to capture enough to like make a good return that makes it attractive you know, versus, on the time scale and, and given the risk and you know, versus other asset classes and so forth, right? So that might be one clue to it. Like maybe a lot of the value uh, just sort of um, is delivered to the world as a surplus, a you know, spillover or whatever to the world. And maybe you manage to capture a small portion of it and that still makes the economics work out and everybody's happy. And then, I, I, you know, I don't know. It may just be that, um, it, it may just be that there's, you, you need a, a a more clever and like less kind of formal or legal model for how you turn um, scientific discoveries into useful inventions and how you turn those into, uh, you know, into products and companies. Uh, you know, it, it might just be something more like, you know what, we, through investing in science, we create the greatest network and community of scientists. And that, you know, and that allows us to be one of the first investors in world changing new products. And that's how our model works. You know, it's not actually a formal, uh, you know, direct connection at all, but we've managed to come up with a model, um, you know, that just kind of makes all the economics work. I don't know. I'm very interested in, in working out some ideas along these lines. Totally. T talk about, you, you wrote a blog post about it, but you've been thinking about it even more. Talk about sort of the linear model of innovation and, and the basic versus the applied research, versus basic versus applied research. Yeah. I've written a couple of posts about this and I, and I do have more I want to write. I've been thinking about a lot. How does 
how does innovation happen? How do inventions happen? Especially what is the relationship between science and technology? What's the relationship between discovery and invention? If you just step way back and kind of look in very broad strokes, it seems obvious that science is kind of the underpinning of technology. And yet there's a paradox, which is that a lot of new inventions, you know, were created without, uh, not on the, not directly on the basis of some scientific principle. In fact, um, it's often the case that we don't, we didn't totally understand why they worked when they were invented. They came about more through tinkering at the margins uh, or tinkering sort of on the frontier. And, uh, and then science sort of came along later to investigate this curious phenomenon that was already being put into practice and like explain why it worked. You see this at the very beginning of the industrial revolution where uh, a lot of early inventions maybe didn't depend on science at all, like uh, the mechanization of the textile industry, or, you know, maybe like the steam engine, they depended on only a little bit of science, um, such as the, the science of air pressure. Uh, and then like a lot of the relevant science, such as thermodynamics only came along like a lot later. But you also see it, um, you know, even, even more in the modern era. So one of the posts I wrote was uh, sort of a case study of the um, invention of the transistor. And uh, the transistor was invented uh, at Bell Labs in the semiconductor research group, clearly depended somewhat on uh, the science of, semicon- of like semiconductor physics. Um, we had to at least know that semiconductors existed and have some notion of their properties before we could go and kind of do those investigations. But like a lot of semiconductor physics that was necessary to invent the transistor had not yet been figured out. And in fact, was figured out by the researchers at Bell Labs in the course of inventing the transistor. And so it's this fascinating story where they kind of shuttled back and forth between science and invention. They would, uh, like on the basis of some science, they kind of like tried to make a transistor. It didn't work. So then they had to go back to the drawing board and like, like go back to theory to try to explain why it didn't work. And then with a new theory, they went back and like tried to make a new, you know, they, they were sort of tinkering again with the, with the experiments. And then again, one of the experiments gets an unexpected result and it's like, Oh, well, this is interesting. How is this happening? And then they go back to, um, you know, theory again and start sort of exploring the physics more and then they can make another better version of the transistor. And so they, they were really shuttling back and forth and they were pushing the frontier of semiconductor physics and discovering new knowledge, you know, in conjunction with the experiments. And so this just like throws, you know, a simple linear model that goes like, first we discover scientific principles, then we make inventions based on them, then we, you know, create products based on the inventions, and then we build a business based on the product. Boom, 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 boom. Like it just happens in order that way. You know, it's like the waterfall model of uh, software development, you know, where it's like, First, we decide on our product requirements, then we create a design, and then an architecture, and then we implement it, and then we test it, and then we deploy it. Boom, 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 like those things all happen in stages. And anybody who's been through, um, you know, uh, software development knows that it doesn't happen that way and can't happen that way. And yet, at the same time, there's some truth to it. Like, it's not completely... It, it, you know, it, it's not it's not completely wrong. There is some truth to the notion that kind of design somehow precedes, um, you know, implementation, but it's just not as clean and simple as that. And I think it's very much the same in in the the, the quote unquote linear model of innovation. It's true in a certain sense that science underpins, you know, technology and invention, but it's not the simple linear thing. So I'm starting to develop a hypothesis, which maybe already exists out there in the literature. I don't don't know. I I haven't checked. But like, it seems to me that what happens is that there's a lot of iterative invention that happens at the frontier, by which I mean um, tinkering that happens 
on the basis of previously established science and could not happen without that previously established base of concepts and, and ideas, but which then pushes the frontiers of the science and explores phenomenon, uh, phenomena that the uh, science cannot necessarily yet fully explain. And that really, you know, great inventions like come out of this boundary uh, zone tinkering where we're doing tinkering on the basis of established science but going, you know, pushing into areas where we don't yet have all the principles. And that describes, uh, you know, the invention of the transistor. And I suspect it describes a lot of other uh, inventions as well. Yeah. I want to skip to the, 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 the culture layer. And when, when I think of sort of what really moves culture, things that come to mind to me are, you know, universities, uh, you know, media, uh, and sort of entertainment industry, you know, our, our sort of narrative, uh, you know, infrastructure more broadly books, movie, movies, TV, et cetera. Let's focus on universities because I know you've been reading a, a bit about them. My sort of, uh, the critique I've heard levied against universities that, that I, I share, Jonathan Haidt has done uh, great, great work on this, is basically sh- showing that uh, universities used to be about, about pursuing knowledge above all else, but have sort of, that, is, that mission has sort of become subservient to a particular kind of activism that is prioritized above. And that activism is often, you feel some people call that critical theory, which is sometimes opposed to progress progress studies in some sense in that critical theory is, is really obsessed with finding uh, the disparities between people and explaining uh, the reasons for them um, and then trying to uh, equalize acro- across that dimension. I'm curious in your research of, of universities, have, have, have does your research support what I just said what, what, or what has been interesting to you and in, in how universities have evolved or what their telos purpose has been over time? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I'm only sort of halfway through my sort of study of the history of universities, and I haven't really gotten up to the present day yet. So I don't know a lot about that. I've heard all the sorts of ideas that you articulated. I'm sympathetic to them, but I, you know, I, I don't know through my own firsthand research kind of like how true that is and how and how significant. So people argue a lot about kind of like, well, how significant is this trend of this kind of you know activism or these things? Like, is this is this really coming to dominate the university or is it just this kind of fringe thing that where there's, you know, a few crazy ideas, but it doesn't dominate. And I think we are seeing now some of those ideas, um, you know, go more mainstream. And so I think that should give people more pause um, about those ideas and how seriously um, uh, they are taking it. It was, it was, it has been said that the, uh, the uncontested absurdities of today become the accepted slogans of tomorrow. And um, I think that is, is absolutely true. So I don't know. Yeah. So I do have that concern, but uh, I, I, yeah, I haven't gotten up to the, like whatever the 1960s or whenever, you know, that kind of stuff um, um, sure. started to happen. So, so let's talk about culture more broadly. If you, if we had a billion dollars, I don't know, a lot of money to dedicate to popularizing, you know, progress uh, as a, as a term in, in, in people, making people believe in it. Because uh, I would I would argue that critical theory is sort of the dominant you know ideology of, of this country right now. Where would you, we get the best leverage on, on, on that money? You think in terms of you know countering that? Yeah, sure. Look, the most important thing to do, I think, or the place to start, is just to tell the actual history. I think the history of progress has been lost. Um, I think people take progress for granted today. I think they don't. I think most people don't know, or they know only in a in a in a weak and vague uh, and anemic sense, how much better life is now than it was um, two hundred, one hundred fifty, even a hundred years ago, even fifty years ago. In many ways, um, they just 
you know, I mean, they, they sort of wake up in the morning uh, on their inner spring or foam mattress and they roll out of bed to take a hot shower and then they get, uh, you know, fresh fruit out of the refrigerator and, uh, you know, and make fresh ground coffee and then they sit down at their laptop or they, or, or they, you know, they hop on the train to go into work and sit in an air conditioned building, you know, with big plate glass windows overlooking, uh, you know, from the 30th floor of an office tower. And they, you know, and they sit in their sort of comfy air on chair at their, at their laptop and kind of, you know, sip coffee while they do their work. And it's like, and they're listening to their favorite, you know, music uh, in their, in their Bluetooth headphones on a, you know, um, through streaming through Spotify or whatever. And it's like, and they just, and all of this stuff was like, none of this existed 200 years ago. You know, 200 years ago, you would have been hauling water from the well uh, to take a bath in the kitchen and, uh, you know, and you would have been heating it up on the stove. And by the way, the water might be contaminated with microbes and you might be catching cholera from it. Um, and, you know, you would walk to work or maybe ride a horse somewhere, uh, you know, and if it was out in the rain, you'd be out in the rain. Um, and by the way, your job was probably on a farm because, you know, before the industrial revolution, more than half of the workforce worked on farms. And so you probably had to work outdoors in all weather, you know, in, in, in all temperatures, and you didn't have fresh fruit year round. Um, you know, you only got it for maybe a brief period uh, in the summer. And you didn't even have fresh vegetables year round, right? Because because vegetables would go bad. You, a lot of what you ate was just like salted meats. And if you wanted music, you know, you, you there were no recordings of music because there was no recording of sound, period. So you like, you know, you had to, if you wanted music, you had to basically perform it yourself, um, et cetera and so forth, right? You just like these contrasts, I think are just not, vivid for people. This should be like a, these basic facts of the, the history of living standards should just be something that, uh, everybody gets as part of their basic history education. And I think if people knew this and they understood that the way we live today is a gift handed down from our ancestors, a gift that we should be grateful for, then I think that they would just approach the world with, you know, with more of that sense of gratitude and of awe and wonder. And, um, and these stories, like these basic stories, they're not political. They're not ideological. They're just, they're just basic facts of history. And you need only a very, you know, sl- uh, you know, you only, you need a very slight amount of philosophy or ideology to kind of understand that these stories are important and that, you know, and, and that they matter to human life and that we should tell them. And so I think that's where everything begins. Just like, let's just, you know, tell those stories. Let's tell them in a more popular way. Let's get them out there. Um, let's make them part of uh, of education. They should be part, uh, you know, at least to some degree, they should be part of, of a history curriculum. Um, adults should be learning these things uh, in terms of, you know, kind of remedial education. If you didn't get it in school, okay, well, let's popularize it through books, through YouTube, through documentaries, through, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, it, it needs to get out there in the media, right? Just like, uh, just a renewed focus and appreciation of how far we've come. Yeah. I think that's the foundation for everything, right? And then hopefully from that, people get inspired themselves to um, start uh, looking into the stories of, well, who were the people who made this happen? What were the institutions and the structures? Um, what were the great ideas that changed in the culture? Like, how did this all come about? Um, and I hope that it, it starts to inspire um, you know, artists to create more optimistic sci-fi 
or at least um, optimistic in the uh, the sense of uh, I had a, a post that I wrote recently about um, uh, kind of descriptive versus prescriptive optimism. Uh, in, descriptive is kind of the like the future is going to be better, um, and prescriptive in the sense of we should work to make the future better. Yeah. Um, you know, and you can kind of combine descriptive pessimism with prescriptive optimism, right? Like essentially, which is the uh, we are facing a huge challenge, but we can overcome it. Um, so like, uh, you know, I would put, uh, the Martian, uh, and, uh, seven eaves as a couple of recent sci-fi works that are sort of very much in the like, um, disaster scenario combined with, uh, the, the fighting spirit of a prescriptive optimism. And, and you know, so both of those, I would kind of put in the optimist camp in, in terms of the optimistic about our, uh, you know, ability to master our fate and control the future through applied intelligence. Where have you netted out on the stagnation thesis, which basically says, Yes, things have been getting better, but they're getting better not as fast as they used to used to get better. I know you thought a lot about that. I think there's some good evidence for it. Cowan and Southwood uh, accumulated some of that evidence in a, a paper a couple of months ago um, where they were trying to just sort of pull all this together. Um, I think the title they had on the paper was something about stagnation in science or is science slowing down? I forget the title of the paper right now. But uh, a lot of it was actually just sort of about economic growth and, and, and GDP and so forth. Robert Gordon's book, uh, which I'm sort of in the middle of right now, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, is quite good and, um, and shows the statistics uh, pretty clearly. So yeah, I, I think there is real evidence for this. It's not as if progress has stopped and it's not as if we've plateaued at all, um, but it does seem as if growth is slower, um, certainly than versus the uh, 1870 to 1970 period, or especially the 1920 to 1970 period. You know, as for sort of exactly why that is, how much of it is natural uh, that maybe we just kind of uh, hit a rougher patch in the the kind of grand history of progress? Um, how much of it is maybe cultural that people uh, stopped caring about progress or got less enthusiastic about it? How much of it is regulatory that there's kind of higher bureaucratic hurdles now? How much of it is these funding mechanisms? Like, I don't totally know. I I, I don't have that breakdown. But I'm, um, I'm getting more and more convinced that at least that the stagnation phenomenon is real um, and that it's something to pay more attention to. Yeah. You, you had a post uh, teasing apart the S-curves. Do you want to unpack a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I mean, I was alluding to this a little bit. So I think um, like where some of this discussion of the stagnation hypothesis gets kind of confused and, con- and confusing is um, when you get, you get back and forth that go like this. You know, people say, oh, you know, we've had, uh, we've had slower growth. You know, there just hasn't been, there hasn't been so much, uh, uh, you know, uh, innovation and, and progress. And then other people come back and say, well, what are you talking about? Look at all the progress in computers and the internet and, um, uh, you know, communications technology and um, smartphones and, and now AI. And like, there's been this, oh, you know, tons and tons of progress. And then the counterpoint to that is like, oh, yeah, but it's just in that one. It's only in the world of bits, right? What about the world of atoms? Um, you know, if you set aside, you know, the, uh, that area of progress, then there hasn't been much progress. And the counter to that is, well, what do you mean if you set aside that, like, isn't that just like an unfair comparison? You're, you're carving out the area where we've had all the progress. And then you're saying uh, there hasn't been much progress in the other areas. Well, you know, that's not a fair argument. The counterpoint to that is, well, yeah, but again, it's just one area. Like if you look back at these previous, you know, at, at, at previous times in history, we had lots of progress in all these other areas. And then you can argue, well, okay, but isn't this just naturally how progress goes? Like we don't make progress in every area at the same rate at all the time. In fact, it, it, it naturally happens that um, 
a, uh, that an area kind of becomes hot and like there's a lot of progress going on in that area and then it plateaus, but we move on to other areas. So why isn't information technology just like the place where we're having um, you know, progress right now? And then the counter to that becomes, well, okay, but why is there only one major area of technology where there's a really steep um, S-curve right now? In the past, we had like maybe multiple S-curves going on at once. Um, You know, maybe we had sort of like energy technology was getting revolutionized um, and at the same time manufacturing and materials and at the same time transportation and medicine and, you know. Um, And now we're kind of like down to one really steep S-curve, whereas previously maybe we had two or three or four, you know, going on at once. So I think the way that that you kind of get to clarity on this is by explicitly separating out, um, I said teasing apart these different S-curves and kind of analyzing them separately, both analyzing the individual S-curves and then kind of analyzing them as a collection or or as a distribution as a whole. Uh, So we can say, yes, okay, the natural course of any one technology is that it starts off slow, hits some kind of inflection point, goes through exponential growth, um, and then uh, eventually kind of hits a saturation point and and, and maybe levels off. We've picked the low-hanging fruit and, um, you know, uh, things get... uh, uh, things get not as uh, as high ROI anymore. There's this natural sigmoid or kind of S curve um, where where it levels off and plateaus. But then the the thing with the low hanging fruit analogy is we discover entire new orchards where there's like whole new fields of of low hanging fruit, and then we can go in uh, and that is basically discovering a new S curve. So uh, you know when we discovered antibiotics, uh, it set off this whole wave of research. And suddenly we found that there were these very fruitful, you know, avenues of research. And within a span of like 20 years from the mid-1930s to the mid-1950s, we discovered like a whole ton of antibiotics and went from having almost no effective antibiotics to having antibiotics that worked against almost every bacterial disease in just like very short period of time. And so you get these kind of golden ages, you know. Similar thing I think is happening right now in genetic research with CRISPR. Um, you know, maybe a similar thing could happen in AI with, with some of the new techniques that are happening. It's like you discover a new technique and then boom, there's this explosion. So you found a new S-curve. Okay, great. The way we get exponential growth over very long periods of time is by piling S-curves on top of each other. It's basically by jumping to a new S-curve um, or, or, or two or three of them as soon as one starts to plateau. Um, and so that's what we need to do. And so I think we can understand progress better by kind of pulling these things apart and saying, okay, we're going to look at individual technologies uh, or areas of technology separate from like overall growth. At the level of an individual S-curve, we want to ask questions like, um, how are individual S-curves different now from they were how they were in the past? Um, are they not as steep as they used to be? Are they plateauing sooner than they used to? Like, do they have a different shape or is there a different phenomenon? Do they just take more money to, uh, or, or investment or more researchers to like really get them going? Like, how, do, how does each one differ from, from previous S-curves? And then we can also ask questions kind of at the aggregate level, um, at the distribution level. How fast are we finding new S-curves? How many are going on at once? Um, you know, what does the distribution look like in terms of like how, how big are they, um, you know, overall, the, the ones that we're discovering? Um, is there more of a gap between them? Is it taking us longer to like jump to the next one? And I think by breaking things apart that way, we can get to a lot more clarity on what's really going on with progress. Totally. What is the overlap between pro- uh, progress movement and, and transhumanism? And, and you know, I've, I've long thought, what is sort of a way to popularize this sort of, you know, the, the, the idea that you know, growth is good because it's, it's been so, you know, villainized. And I, one analogy is sort of, 
you know, live forever and appeal to sort of like the only way out is through and, and sort of this like deeply, you know, that's a transhumanist approach. Yeah, another uh, way is, um, is what progress, just like poor people get richer. That's, that's what we're focused. We're focused on quality of life for everybody. And yeah, sure. Per- perhaps there's inequality, but that's not the right thing to think about. We think about is, you know, just how many people are now eating and, and have basic, you know, quality of life. What, what are your thoughts there? What, what's sort of the overlap and difference? And how do you think about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know a lot about transhumanism. I think of it as a sort of, a, I don't know, a, a specific kind of futurist movement, right? That's thinking about um, some big things that could happen in the future if we extrapolate out technologies. Uh, and then, you know, another, like the, the second thing that you talked about, like I might refer to that as kind of the global development, um, you know, mindset where it's like, look, we have some regions of the world that are pretty advanced and have high standards of living. Uh, we have a bunch of other, you know, billions of people who have lo- uh, comparatively low standard of living. How do we how do we lift the, the rest of the world out of poverty? How do we bring this great standard of living that's obviously possible to, to everyone and kind of even it out? The, uh, progress studies, in my mind, or, or, the, or the progress sort of community is interested in both of those things. Like, I personally am interested in both. I think that both zero to one type of progress where we're making, you know, uh, new frontier, breaking open new frontiers and creating new things that are, uh, you know, that were just unimaginable, you know, last year or a decade ago. I think that's an important part of progress. And without doing that, then progress will eventually stall and plateau. Um, but also distributing progress is like an important part of progress. If, if an invention is made and only one person gets to enjoy it, like that's not a lot of progress. If only 10% of the world gets to enjoy it, well, that's good. But it's even better when, you know, 90% or 99 or 99.9% of the world gets to enjoy it, right? So I think, uh, you know, getting like both the zero to one and the one to N are important forms of progress, and not everybody uh, agrees with me in terms of like interests or like where should we focus or kind of what's interesting. But as far as I'm concerned, both of those are progress. Like the thing I would say about the progress community is um, at least my approach to it, I try to be pretty empirical. So, you know, we can extrapolate to the fa- out to the future somewhat, but like one of the lessons we learned from the past is extrapolating the future is really hard. Um, and people generally like don't uh, aren't very good at predicting like where progress is going to go or kind of what the big things are going to be. Uh, you know, if you look back at sort of even the utopian sort of sci-fi futures of the 1950s, like there's a bunch of stuff that they thought about that we didn't, you know, that we still don't have. And there's a bunch of stuff that we have now that they didn't even dream of. Uh, one of the, one of my favorite examples of this is uh, in Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation series. Um, you know, early in the first book of that series, somebody takes like an interstellar, it's like 10,000 years in the future or something, right? And we've like colonized the whole, I don't know, galaxy or whatever. And somebody goes out in a interstellar or interplanetary flight and they're like landing on another planet and they get there. And the first thing they do is they get in a taxi and the taxi is driven by a human driver. And so it's just like, uh, oh, and by the way, people are still smoking cigarettes. So it's just like, okay, here's three things, one of which is like already dead, another of which we're, you know, we're probably going to, you know, get rid of soon. And then another uh, is like, obviously, way, way, way in the future already. So like, sci-fi visions don't get these things correct. Um, And you can argue sci-fi is fiction, and it's meant to entertain, and it's not meant to predict. But still, these are, you know, this is how people thought about the future. So, um, you know, from from my point of view, like the thing that we, the, the way that we make progress is not by projecting a very specific thing out, like super far into the future. There can be some value in that, right? And it's, and it's good to sort of think about like how good could things get that sort of thing is inspiring to people it's motivating 
But like the way we actually sit down, like buckle down and make the progress is by pushing the frontier forward. And so I think it's focusing at the frontier, like what's just barely not possible, but could be possible next and is going in a sort of generally like good direction, right? So it's the combination. So, so rather than making like a blueprint for the next hundred years and then implementing the blueprint, it's more like having some compass that kind of points us in generally interesting directions and then like really focusing at the nuts and bolts level at the frontier. I think that's how progress is made. So I think that's the kind of, so I think, you know, futurist visions are great. We just don't want to get too wrapped up in like a highly detailed vision of what the long, the very long-term future is going to be like, because we're going to get it wrong. We should paint those visions in very broad strokes and then like go at them uh, again by kind of attacking the frontier. And we should combine that with uh, also the global development mindset where we're also distributing, you know, the benefits of progress as widely as possible. And, um, and I think we should not drop either of those, right? Progress is not just about, getting toilets to people who don't have them, but it's also not just about, um, you know, some sort of like specific, like very long-term vision of, you know, immortality or, or whatever. Yeah. To people who are worried about the long-term effects of, you know, whether it's environmental or whether it's humans, you know, AI, is it that they are, what do you say to them? Do you say that they're mistaken? Do you say that they, you know, we're not good at predicting the future. So, you know, don't stop progress just in case, something might, might have, what would you say to the people who are the most elegant arguments or eloquent arguments get for people who are trying to put constraints on progress? Yeah. Look, I think safety concerns are very real. So every new technology almost brings new risks and hazards with it. Technology is power and, you know, power is dangerous. Power can be dangerous. So first off, technology is amoral, right? So it can be used for good or evil. But then also, like, technology is power that does not automatically come with its own safety mechanisms and features built into it. And if you look at, you know, the sort of the history of technology, many, many, uh, maybe most technologies came with new risks. And and, and, and most of them needed to, uh, they needed new safety technologies to get invented along with them. So, you know, when we invented uh, the car, we also inadvertently invented the car crash. And we needed to then come along later and invent seatbelts and anti-lock brakes and airbags and crumple zones, not to mention, by the way, traffic lights and um, divided highways and barriers, and for that matter, driver's licenses, right? Um, similarly, when we invented the x-ray, uh, you know, we found, we, we invented a powerful new medical imaging uh, technology. Uh, it's also something that could kill people with too much exposure. And we very quickly figured that out within the first year or two of people um, playing around with x-rays, they started to realize that these could be very harmful for health. You know, what did we do? Well, you know, we didn't, we didn't roll back the car. We invented auto safety technology. We also didn't roll back x-rays. Or, or we did, but only, you know, to the point of sort of medical necessity, right? So with x-rays, we developed new safety procedures and processes. We said, we're going to limit them to medical necessity. We're going to have the smallest dosage uh, and exposure, the smallest, uh, uh, you know, the weakest radiation for the shortest amount of time with the greatest distance between uh, the emitter and, and the person. And we're going to come up with ways to measure radiation exposure and then quantify uh, what's a safe dosage and, and so on and so forth. And we're going to invent lead shielding so that you only get the parts of your body exposed that are medically necessary and, and so forth. And there were some things that we rolled back. So, uh, you know, some people wanted to put x-ray booths at carnivals and fairs and just have it be like a novelty. Come on in and see your bones, you know, and like, okay, we rolled that back. That was a bad idea. But so this is kind of the history of safety. And so I think we do want to think, you know, for every technology that we create, we want to think about what new power are we unleashing on the world and what safety mechanisms do we want to build around it? Um, I think maybe, 
you know, we need to and want to get better at um, doing that a little bit ahead of time. So like historically, we've been very bad at anticipating, you know, dangers and hazards. We're generally in a very reactive mode. So it's like after something happens that's really bad, um, after somebody gets killed, after there's a disaster, then we kind of go do a root cause analysis and we, and we try to figure out, okay, how do, we, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? You know, that is a fundamentally sound method. I, I think the, you know, the concern is that our technologies are getting sort of exponentially more powerful and perhaps they are leading to uh, exponential risk and, and ultimately perhaps even existential risk. Are the dangers getting so bad that we do not have a chance to learn from them, that we must anticipate in advance? Um, and if that's the case, I just got to say, and I think there's a good argument that's the case. I just got to say that, like, historically, we have not been good at that. Um, we, if that's the case, we need to get a lot better at predicting um, because we've been bad at predicting what's going to kill us. And we need to get a lot better at heeding those predictions uh, because even sometimes when we do foresee the dangers, people do not always, uh, you know, act on them. Alexander Fleming, who discovered uh, the action of the, the penicillium mold that penicillin comes from, also foresaw the, the danger of antibiotic resistance. You know, he could sort of just sort of deduce from his understanding of biology and his understanding of evolution that antibiotic resistance was a risk. Um, and yet in the age of antibiotics that, you know, that, that came about, antibiotics were like grossly overused. People would just prescribe them like a miracle drug for anything. And so, yeah, we need to get better at predicting and better at heeding those predictions. And that is perhaps a, a social technology, you know, that we haven't yet developed. Yeah. I want to talk about China just a little bit because often we, we conflate economic growth and progress with sort of liberalism more broadly of freedom of speech and, and, um, and sort of other sort of civil liberties that China doesn't va- or, or, or their government doesn't, doesn't value as much. And yet that is also a story of tremendous economic growth. Is China sort of the exception that proves to rule when we think about the types of societies that, that bring progress or do they sort of complicate our understanding of it a little bit? I think they complicate a little bit. I think it's not super complicated to understand that like most of what's happened in China in the last 40 years or so has been, you know, quote unquote, catch up growth, right? So they've been, um, a lot of what they've been doing is importing the best ideas from more advanced economies and, uh, you know, just kind of building things up that way. I think, you know, we in the West should be wary of just kind of dismissing all of it as catch up growth. I think we should, that would probably be, you know, uh, I think that would be a mistake the same way that it would be a mistake to say that obviously they have some amazing better model because of their growth rates. And, you know, we should all just kind of jump in and adopt that. I don't fully know, you know, what to say about it yet. First off, because I don't fully understand the, the Chinese system. I don't totally understand exactly how authoritarian it still is versus is not. And also because I think these things take a very long time to play out. I think they take decades. I think we'll really know in the coming decades when the catch-up growth runs out and then we see, you know, do they plateau? Uh, do they make some breakthrough? Do they actually pull ahead uh, of, of the West in, in some crucial way? But I don't know. Not an expert on China, so I'll, I won't say too much about that. Uh, how about on the, going back to the second layer? What would you like to see more uh, innovation or if you could wave a wand, how, how do we get out of sort of the bureaucratic or sort of government structural problems that, that we have? Yeah, that's a super tough one. And I don't know, but I would just like to, I think it's something that just doesn't get discussed very much. And I think it's it's very difficult to discuss politically because of the safety angle, because there is almost nothing that trumps a safety argument. 
And there's almost nothing that you can't sort of pass in the name of safety. And I think that's kind of where we have to start. Like, I think it almost has to start a little, maybe more on that, the deepest layer of kind of philosophical and cultural um, ideas and, and attitudes of how do we think about safety? How does safety fit into our lives? How does safety rank against other values? How do we make those trade-offs? And those are tough questions, right? I don't want to be flip and say it has an easy answer. But I think we have to start with an acknowledgement that safety is not only and always the overriding concern that is, you know, the final answer that can, you know, to, to, to everything. Uh, that we do trade off safety for other things and, and, and that, uh, you know, safety is just not sort of the ultimate value. And so I think if we could start to at least acknowledge that there is a trade-off between safety and speed, efficiency, progress, and, and ultimately long-term breakthroughs that will, you know, potentially, that, that will benefit lives, uh, you know, both in, in terms of saving lives, but also just in terms of enhancing joy and, uh, you know, and, and health and uh, thriving and achievement and knowledge and learning and, you know, all, all the other values that we're trading off against health and safety. Um, once there's that acknowledgement, then we can start talking about, okay, how do we evaluate our rules? How do we evaluate uh, the laws and the regulations and the bureaucracy? And, um, and what might be some mechanisms to start unwinding this tangle of, uh, of, of, of bureaucratic regulations that we have? You know what are some what are some obvious wins we can make and some compromises? Um, you know, for instance, I heard somebody suggest like if you look okay, go back to the FDA and the the billion dollar drug pipeline, right? There's a whole gauntlet of tests you need to run to get FDA approval, uh, and it goes through these sort of multiple phases. You've heard of phase one, two, three clinical trials. Phase three is uh, the absolute most expensive, right? Naturally, these go in increasing levels of commitment and and, and expense. Phase three is the most expensive, um, but you've basically proven like a significant degree of safety before phase three. You, you maybe haven't proven uh, uh, efficacy, right? Which is kind of what the, the FDA um, makes you prove. What if we had like an automatic right to try after phase two? So not that something would just immediately go onto the market like a fully approved drug, but what if it went out there with some kind of a warning label attached, but, with, but where you know, consumers could access it? Um, with some sort of warning or understanding that, hey, this has only gone through phase two, it hasn't gone through phase three. Like that alone could start to create a market for early phase drugs that would just, that could change the economics of the drug pipeline and maybe make certain drugs, uh, you know, profitable to pursue that, that weren't before. I'm not saying that that is like definitely a thing we should do, but I think those are the kinds of proposals that we could, should be considering. Like where can we ease the, um, the controls at the margins in ways that are smart trade-offs of economics against safety and in ways where consumers are fully informed. And so I think if we could just at least start talking about more experiments like that, but, but again, first you've got to get people to acknowledge that it's a problem and that it's a trade-off that we're unwittingly making. Um, and then you can start talking about these mechanisms for how to make that trade-off in a smarter way. Yeah. I love what Tyler Cowen did in Stubborn Attachments is where he, he made us value future lives as the same you know, construct that we value present lives. And so when you think about it in, in, in that perspective, you know, foregoing economic growth today is, is stealing from people tomorrow. Uh, I thought that was yeah. Have you looked at all into into population growth or, or demographics in general and how that impacts? Yeah, I mean, what to say about that? Uh, population growth is slowing. That is, the population is still growing. The first derivative is positive, but I believe the, the second derivative now is negative. We're growing a little bit less every year. And 
I don't know what the models, I can't remember if the models say that we're going to actually just plateau at some number, you know, at some point or even, or even shrink. But yeah, population is not growing as fast as it used to. What does that mean for the future? Uh, first off, I think it means that, you know, overpopulation concerns are probably just, that just, that just deprioritizes them even more. I, I don't think they were ever really a, um, a serious uh, thing that, that we should have been too concerned about. But you know, now I'm definitely not concerned about overpopulation. What I am concerned about is uh, I think that there are actually huge benefits to population. And in particular, if you just, you know, think about um, how many one in a million geniuses do we get, you know, are born each year? Well, it's the birth rate divided by a million, right? Um, and those are the, the sort of multi-sigma outliers that change the world and can drive progress for everyone. Those are the people who discover entirely new theories and laws of physics. Those are the people who, um, you know, invent, uh, you know, amazing breakthrough technologies. Those are the people who create, you know, $100 billion companies and now trillion dollar companies. And um, we need more of those. And so what I'm worried about is that fewer people means, you know, fewer like three sigma geniuses. And very few people are worried about that. I think more people should be concerned about that. So so perhaps in, in, in closing, you know, six months from now, a year from now, what, what questions do you hope that you, you, you find answered or, or sort of what, what's, uh, what's next, to, next to come here? Yeah, sure. I want to uh, get a better overview of just the, the history of technology, the kind of how we got here. And uh, I want to really put that together into a, uh, a package that, uh, you know, more people can understand, like I said, talking about, um, uh, you know, popularizing it. Uh, I want to understand better the history of all of these funding models and kind of how things have changed, um, the decline of the corporate research lab, the sort of rise of the government um, funding agency, those kind of shifts. And, and I want to understand in a much deeper way um, how those have affected progress. Uh, I want to understand the stagnation hypothesis better and uh, its causes and just kind of be able to, you know, to tie everything better into a, um, a story that you know, gives people a better picture and also starts to point to um, some actually prescriptive answers. I, uh, I think that's a great place to, uh, to write. Well, actually, let me ask you one question. You've been doing this for six months, nine months, you know, a bit longer. What, what is, what's something you've changed your mind on in terms of how, how you viewed uh, progress or sort of the broader field? Yeah, good question. I mean, certainly I would say, uh, you know, everything I've mentioned about funding models and mechanisms was not something that I kind of predicted um, going into this. Uh, it's something that really came out from the stories that I was reading. Uh, and, and, you know, some of the, the things about the different models, um, the, in particular, the, the, how, uh, how effective some of the corporate research labs were in the like 1920s and 30s, um, how much like fundamental science came out of them, how many Nobel prizes, you know, got awarded to people in corporate labs. Uh, that was surprising to me. And, I won't say that we can can or should go back to that model, but I think there is something to learn about that in an age where, you know, in, in, in an age where corporations are accused of, uh, perhaps rightly, uh, of short-termism and just kind of like managing to next quarter's, uh, you know, earnings results. You know, the fact that some corporations a century ago could be like extremely far-sighted and have these very long-term plans, I think we should just look more at you know, what is it that causes people to think long-term? What types of institutions and incentive structures allow people to think long-term and to invest for the long-term? That, that might be one of the most important things we can look into. Totally. And so for people who really liked uh, 
like what they heard and want to dig deeper, uh, where can you point them, Jason? Yeah, sure. So um, check out my uh, website is The Roots of Progress. It's at rootsofprogress.org. And I would like to call particular attention uh, for any uh, teenagers who might be listening to this or any adults, uh, who uh, parents of teens, or if you, if you know a teen who might be interested in some of these ideas. Um, I have created an online learning program called Progress Studies for Young Scholars, where we go through the history of technology and, and some of these basic ideas. You can find that at progressstudies.school. We've been running it as a summer program, but by, by popular demand, we're going to be continuing it into the fall. And so it'll be running as an after-school program or a homeschooling uh, program. And so check that out at progressstudies.school uh, uh, for, for any teens uh, in your life or if you are a teen listening to this. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much. It's been a great episode. Absolutely. Really enjoyed the conversation. You asked great questions, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.